Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. I'm here with Paul Monies, who covers state government for Oklahoma Watch. Paul, tell us about what happened last week with ONG, Oklahoma Natural Gas, of the Corporation Commission. That's right. Their final order came up before the three-member commission last week, and uh, the commission voted two to one to approve their financing order, which would allow uh, the state to sell bonds on their behalf of the customers for about um, $1.4 billion for the storm cost from last February's uh, winter storm. And is there still an exit fee for customers? You had that in an earlier story. Um, That exit fee was for customers who want to switch from electric heaters and appliances and stop using natural gas service. That's right. That was actually taken out in the final order. That was quite controversial when it was first proposed, uh, but the commissioners did vote to take it out, and and that's not going to be in the final order now. Why are ONG's uh, fuel charges for the storm of fixed cost for every ratepayer and not based on their usage at the time? That's right. Yeah, that was basically the way that they wanted to, to structure the bonds and said that was an easier way to structure the bonds so that everyone was going to pay the same amount no matter what kind of customer they were. Uh, I will say that there's three levels of residential customers, so they're going to be paying slightly different amounts um, during that time. And then industrial and commercial customers will be paying a different fixed amount too. But um, it is a fixed charge on the customers across their customer base. And they have probably about 900,000 customers in Oklahoma. So what's, what's next with the ONG case? Well, just part of the process, this now goes um, over to the Oklahoma Supreme Court uh, for what's called a validation hearing. Uh, it's basically so the, the court can bless the type of bonds that are going to be used. Um, and so that's going to be next. Um, I will say that that's already happened for another case for Oklahoma Gas and Electric, which uh, the Corporation Commission approved in a two to one vote uh, in December. That came up before the Supreme Court last week in a hearing before a referee. And so they're looking at just kind of the technical parts of that. Uh, that was also one of the last times that people could protest that securitization agreement for OG&E. And we had probably about two people present in person and another dozen or so provide written comments against the actual securitization proposal for OG&E. What other similar cases has the Corporation Commission been working on to deal with the high fuel costs of that uh, February storm from last year? Yes, there's probably about maybe five or six regulated utilities that are having to deal with these storm costs of really high natural gas prices. Um, Like I said before, the the Oklahoma Gas and Electric one is already through to the Supreme Court and in its kind of final part there. Um, The ONG one is getting there soon and then um, still pending at the Corporation Commissioner one for um, Public Service Company of Oklahoma, which is mostly Tulsa and Eastern Oklahoma electric customers, and also one for Centerpoint Energy, which has about 100,000 natural gas customers around Lawton in the southwest part of the state. Who's challenging the state's uh, storm cost securitization law? Well, actually, there's a a lawsuit being filed at the Oklahoma Supreme Court by a former lawmaker, uh, Mike Reynolds. Um, He said that basically the the way they've structured these securitization bonds is unconstitutional and that this should go before a full vote of the people in an election. And I think when there's that much money involved, somebody profited uh, from that storm last year. Who is it? Yeah, that's the big question. We, we don't know. Um, the only people who do know are the people who are involved in the case, the regulators um, and the, the lawyers and attorneys in the case. 
That is usually kept secret in these types of cases, but um, people are arguing that this is such a huge cost that there should be some transparency and there's not going to be any kind of um, you know, untoward bidding by knowing who was bidding for that, that natural gas when it got so high during the storm. And so who's, who's standing up for consumers in this? Well, um, by law, it's the attorney general. And so the attorney general has actually signed off on each of the two securization agreements that have been voted on by uh, the Corporation Commission. So the, the attorney general did do a lot of work behind the scenes for about six months. Um, but also separately from the Corporation Commission's actions, the AG is supposed to be investigating price gouging. That was mentioned by the previous AG, Mike Connor, when the, the storm happened. But we haven't had uh, much updates from the new attorney general, John O'Connor, um, since that time period. What, what drove the prices so high? It was a, unfortunately a combination of, of demand, extreme cold, um, and then kind of a, a pooling of the demand, both from residential for heating and from the electric sector to power natural gas plants. And at the same time, supplies were diminished because um, a lot of the, uh, the infrastructure was freezing or having problems produ- producing in the first place. What are regulars, regulators uh, going to do to make sure we don't end up in a similar situation next time around? Well, behind the scenes, the Corporation Commission has held a couple of study sessions with regulated utilities, kind of to talk about how they might winterize their equipment, how they can better coordinate uh, gas supplies during times of emergency. Um, separately, the, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is kind of still looking at some of the, the prices to see if there's any manipulations in the markets at that time. All right. So uh, maybe just for listeners, refresh their memories on what's happened here. Um, we're talking about the outfall from a February 2021 winter storm when uh, getting natural gas became extremely expensive uh, for a little while. And um, the decision here is that customers of Oklahoma Natural Gas and OG&E and others are going to be paying off the cost of that gas for a long time to come. Can you uh, give us a quick summary of that decision? Yeah, so the, they thought the best way to do this was a, a process called securization, which basically allows you to, to put those costs over a period of years, in this case, 25, 28 years, uh, fixed price each month for customers. So it's a small amount for customers rallying, having that, that sticker shock right up front where we were facing uh, probably bills of $1,200, $1,400 a month per customer for the next year if it was all paid at once. So basically, the, the securization process takes that debt off the utilities' books and um, lets the state sell bonds that will then be paid back by customer bills and charges on their bills. And that's going to cost the uh, average customer somewhere around $10 a month, That's right? But for 25 or 30 years. That's right. If you're a, both a natural gas customer for ONG, say, and an electric customer, say, for either PSO or OG&E, um, you know, it's, it's going to be about $10 a month, generally for most customers, for 25 years or more. Now, okay. Thanks, Paul. We've been talking to Paul Moneys, who covers state government for Oklahoma Watch, about the decisions in the natural gas rate cases. Paul, thanks. Thank you. We're talking now with Oklahoma Watch state government reporter Trevor Brown, who covers democracy. Trevor highlighted some important upcoming election dates in his most recent newsletter. Now he's working on a package looking at legislative proposals to change the state's voting laws. 
Trevor, can you tell us what's coming up on the calendar? Yeah, so Oklahoma's first big election of the year is coming up. That's going to be on Tuesday, February 8th, um, with early voting starting Thursday. So much of the state will have um, a lot of local races, a lot of primary school board um, races. Um, there are also some big mayoral races in Oklahoma City and Norman and some other state or some other cities around the state. What about for the rest of the year? Can you give us a, a quick rundown what to expect? Yeah, so this is going to be a big election year for Oklahoma. Um, we have a lot of races. We're going to have the gubernatorial. We got statewide races for other um, top offices. We have most of the legislature. And then a lot of other local races on the ballot. Um, some key dates to kind of watch is that in mid-April is the election filing period. That's when candidates actually formally declare they're going to run or not. Um, then we have the primary at the end of June, the runoff in August, and finally the general election in November. You know, last year, a number of uh, GOP-led states, <clears throat> including Texas, passed laws that would make it harder for some people to vote. Did Oklahoma follow that path? No. Um, actually, Oklahoma kind of went the other way. It was kind of bucking the trend of, like, like you said, a number of Republican-led states have made it harder to vote. Oklahoma, really the only big thing passed last year was adding an extra day for early voting for presidential elections. But we really didn't see the type of um, what some people would call voter suppression, other people would call election security laws um, last year. What about this year? What type of proposals are out there for the upcoming legislative session? Yeah, so this year might be different. Um, I was actually reviewing the uh, latest filings, and I found about 82 voting or election-related bills um, have already been filed for the upcoming session, and that's not even counting more than a dozen shell bills. These are bills that um, have no language right now but could be substituted for language um, later on during the session. So we could even see more than what's already filed. What are some examples that you've seen of bills that would make it harder for people to vote? Yeah, so one bill that I was um, looking at is one that would require all voters to re-register to vote and then provide proof of U.S. citizenship and other um, requirements before the end of 2023 or they would lose their voting status that would, um, you know, surely put a lot of burden on some people that are, you know, haven't been following it too closely and, you know, might miss the registration periods. Um, there's another bill out there that would add some reporting requirements on notary publics. These are the people that um, need to sign off on early absentee ballots. Um, this could be, you know, another requirement that some people could argue would make it harder to find um, notaries to approve these um, absentee ballots. What about legislation that calls for election results to be audited or reviewed? Are we likely to see those? Yeah, so I've seen um, several of these bills filed. Many of them are titled things such as the Oklahoma Integrity Act or the Election Security Act. Um, a lot of these are being filed from lawmakers who have voiced concerns about election security here and elsewhere. Um, many of these concerns have been um, not backed up by evidence, um, but there's definitely going to be a push at least to have some, you know, forensic auditing, things like that for the elections. Um, but there's a good number of people that say that 
this is not needed in Oklahoma already has secure elections. Okay, but on on the other side, there are some bills uh, that would give Oklahomans more opportunities to vote, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, There's a number of bills filed both by Republicans and Democrats that um, would, again, add extra hours or even days for early voting. Um, That's something a lot of voting advocates are asking for. Others would seek things like automatic voter registration or making sure um, voting rights are restored after an incarcerated inmate is released from prison. Um, So we're going to see a lot of those bills as well. Well, in the past, a lot of those proposals haven't gone over very well. Why not? And and what are the prospects for this year look like? Yeah, that's right. I've actually did some um, articles in the past looking at the success of election related bills. And um, most of the times they don't even get a committee hearing um, if there's a bill that would expand voting or, or, you know, some big changes. A lot of these um, things lawmakers really don't want to you know, monkey around with. They, they're they already in office. They don't want to change anything that might compromise that, some people say. Um, so a lot of these bills might have a tough path ahead of them. Is there anything that Oklahoma voters should know to make sure that they get a chance to cast their ballot, anything they should have on their radar for this year? Yeah, so it's always important to check to make sure that you're registered to vote. Uh, the general rule is that you need to be registered about 25 days before each election. And that applies for the primary, the runoff, the general um, you can go to oklahoma.gov backslash elections to check if you're registered. Um, you know, even if you think you are, you voted last year or two years ago, it's always good to, to make sure. Okay. And uh, maybe remind everybody, once you've registered to vote, how does that registration expire? So there's a number of uh, ways that it expired if you, um, you know, Registered to vote in another state. Um, Oklahoma has a rule. If you don't vote for a number of elections in a row, you will be removed. So say you haven't voted for, you know, maybe the last three or four election cycles. Um, Oklahoma is one of the states that would remove you as one of those reasons. So if you haven't voted for a while, you know, that's one of the reasons you could be potentially kicked off the rolls. So definitely make sure to go in and check and make sure you're still registered. Yep, that's correct. All right, Trevor. Hey, thanks for all the information. Trevor Brown covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch. You can see all his work at oklahomawatch.org. In this segment of Long Story Short, we're talking to Keaton Ross, who covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. Keaton, in previous sessions, state lawmakers pushed legislation aimed at reducing the state prison population. Has that focus shifted at all? We've seen since the pandemic started, our state pop, our state prison population declined uh, and has since stabilized. So over the past few years, we've seen more of a focus on legislation aimed at helping people coming out of prison um, with reentry and, and finding a job and getting reintegrated back into the community. Uh, and it looks like that, that trend will continue this session. You have a story that referenced a bill that would allow the state to automatically clear certain criminal records. How would that work? Yeah, that bill is House Bill 3316 by Nicole Miller. Uh, essentially, that would allow the state to set up a computer algorithm that identifies cases that are eligible for expungement it wouldn't change the eligibility of what uh, cases may and may not be eligible. It just kind of automates the system more, um, gets that going. So, you know, someone who's eligible for expungement 
doesn't have to go and hire an attorney and get that process started, which is often expensive. Uh, so that's essentially what would happen there. So who, what kind of people could take advantage of that? Yeah, so it would be people uh, convicted of a misdemeanor or a lower level nonviolent felony that have stayed out of the system for five or more years, uh, haven't gotten a new uh, criminal charge or, or conviction. And uh, the idea is that the system would help those folks more easily find employment and housing and that would ultimately help with rehabilitation and, and keeping them out of the justice system long term. And one of the problems Oklahoma's faced is keeping its state prisons adequately staffed. Are there any bills to try to remedy that problem? Yeah, there are two bills by Representative Justin Humphrey, uh, a former formerly worked in the in the state prison system and is is active in uh, bills trying to to change things in our state prisons. Uh, one of those bills would, and I wrote about it previously, would uh, reduce the, the Department of Corrections minimum hiring age from 21 to, or not 20, excuse me, 20 to 18. Um, and that's, that's received some uh, pushback from folks who think that 18 and 19-year-olds aren't prepared to work in a correctional environment. Um, but the idea there is that we need more people in our state prisons and we're going to try to do it by getting younger folks in. Um, Humphrey also has a bill that would raise the starting pay for correctional officers from fifteen seventy four an hour up to around eighteen fifty an hour, I want to say, to bring it more in line with uh, kind of the regional average. Okay, what about police reform legislation? That's a topic we were hearing a lot about a year or so to go. Are we going to see any legislation related to that? Yeah, there were there were several bills by Democratic lawmakers uh, last session uh, didn't pass. Uh, they're eligible to be heard again, but uh, probably unlikely that we'll see any uh, movement there. Uh, there is one bill by a Republican lawmaker, Senate Bill 1537 by Senator Daryl Weaver, uh, that would clarify some language and uh, make it easier for CLEAT, which is the body that oversees local law enforcement agencies to decertify officers. Uh, if they're accused of misconduct, there's evidence of misconduct, uh, but they weren't convicted of a crime. Currently, the uh, the main avenue of getting a police officer certified is if they are convicted of a misdemeanor or felony. We could see a big change in how courts sentence criminal defendants. Is that right? That's right, yes. There's a, a proposal that would create a crime classification system, uh, essentially grouping uh, similar felonies together based on severity, um, and those would all have a similar sentencing range. Currently, it's kind of just a mishmash. The legislature uh, decides what is a crime and sets the sentencing range, and it's it's kind of all over the place, and that's um, been part of the blame for why we've, we've seen conversation on, um, you know, sentence enhancements and crimes that where the sentencing range is anywhere from like two years to life in prison. And it's just really broad. Um, that would, that would standardize those, those sentencing ranges. Um, and that's the proposal. And what's, there's some contention over that, right? What's the, the point of contention on reclassification? That's right. Um, justice advocates think the proposal could increase the amount of time certain uh, nonviolent offenders spend in prison because there are 
uh, mandatory sentence requirements for a lot of the crimes. If you're convicted of, you know, a lower level felony, you might be required to serve 10 or 15 percent of your sentence in prison, whereas previously you could have served that um, on probation or parole. Um, so that's kind of the point of contention there. All right. And how will we know? When does it become clear which of these bills has a chance of turning into a law and which ones are dead in the water? Yeah. So we're it'll happen fairly quickly. Um, the deadline for bills to move out of the House is in late February um, and early April in the Senate. So we'll we'll look in the next few weeks. The House bills will have a better idea of, of what has a shot. And then the Senate bills will will have a little more time. But um they need to clear that initial committee to get to a full vote. Um, and that can sometimes be arduous. Got it. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. Keaton Ross covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. You can see all his work at oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.